आई वी एम वेलकम टू बीनीथ द फोर्स द विशाल गोंडल शो इन माई ऑन्टरप्रिनोरियल जर्नी ऑफ ओवर ट्वेंटी इयर्स I've had the pleasure of knowing, interacting, and being friends with some of the most amazing super achievers. Each one of them have achieved success in their field by harnessing their knowledge, passion, and wealth, and have become the force of good. It takes years for one to become an overnight success. I am trying to decode what they did so differently in these years to be where they are today. My guest on the show is Devyanshu Ganatha, a solo paragliding pilot, a scuba diver. a marathoner a trekker and now a high altitude cyclist and i forgot to tell you one important thing he's absolutely blind devyanshu welcome to the show thank you vishal good to be here awesome i hear that you are embarking on a big mission this year with a few other blind people and uh, tell me more about it so yeah i'm excited about the expedition that we're doing in july august this it's called it's called m2k m2k which is a cycling expedition where we'll have uh, seven blind cyclists on a tandem cycle we'll have uh, three amputees and one person with a spinal injury uh, who's a paraplegic who will all ride from manali to khardungla a distance of about 550 kilometers to the world's highest motorable road wow and all these people are doing this for the first, I mean, of course you have done this before but all the other people are doing this for the first time yes everybody is doing it for the first time and and how does it work are they cycling alone or there is somebody with them how does this entire event work it's an inclusive cycling expedition uh, so you have tandem cycles for the blind so you have a sighted captain who uh, navigates this the cycle and you have the blind as a stroker who they and they work together as a team and and what what is this cycle is it a special cycle where do you get this from so this is these are called tandem cycles um these are meant for two people these are uh, synchronous cycles so you have to pedal together you have to work together one person can't ride this cycle you need two people and um, unfortunately we don't get these cycles in india we have to import them get them made there we are the first to launch tandem cycling as a sport in this country it's interesting because usually cycling is a solo sport but with this it no longer is a solo sport it suddenly becomes a team sport so, so so let me put this in perspective you are actually getting a tandem cycle with which two people ride with one able bodied person the pilot and the second person on the cycle is either blind or paraplegic or you know some kind of disability and they are going to be riding this for how many days you said so uh, first of all only the blind will be on the tandem okay uh the amputees will be on regular solo cycles mtbs okay they can be single amputees or multiple amputees mm-hmm. and the person who's a wheelchair user the the person who's paraplegic they have a special cycle which is called a hand cycle oh wow and is designed for these terrains so this also is imported from the from the us currently are about 32 cyclists including able bodied solo support cyclists mm-hmm. the captains this the blind strokers the amputees and plus of course you have the support staff and this starts from manali and in how many days do you reach khardungla 12 days reporting is on 29th of july to manali we flag off on the 30th 
and on the 9th of August we should be on the top of the world the same thing repeats for second batch starting from 12th of august to 24th of august and and this is literally at the highest motorable road in the world that's where you're going what is the height over there so 18000 or 18350 18350 feet so you're literally doing an extreme sport and then you're doing it on literally the highest motorable road in the world and you are taking blind and other differently able people are you crazy i mean why are you doing this I believe everyone can and the problem is that you you get overwhelmed when you think of it as 550 kilometers you think of it as 18350 feet um it's very overwhelming I agree these are tough terrains I agree it's tough it's not easy but break it down break it down if i tell you can you do 50 kilometers a day what would be your answer like be? all i can tell you is that most people listening to this show have have never even ridden a cycle for a few kilometers it's insane i mean i can't even think about it but that's what makes it fun because there is a challenge to it um there are many variables but there's there's an element of challenge there's an element of risk how do you go ahead and convince somebody who is blind to do this there are many people out there who especially in my community of persons with disability who want to do adventure sports who want to go, get out there but don't have any opportunities and and, and how do you convince them that hey, this me, is an opportunity and they should for, be doing this? i just have to present the opportunity and then talk them through it so nobody ever came to them and even presented an opportunity like this never before in fact most of the world has constantly told them you can't do this if you're blind you can't you're not even allowed in a swimming pool how do you train for this so the training has started almost 4 months 5 months before we pair them with pretty good cyclists how do you convince them to do this i don't really have to convince them because i believe and uh, i believe it's an amazing experience All I tell them is this is what we're going to do this is an amazing experience this is my experience and then just explain the process to them that what is expected of them what is expected there what can they expect and what does this training entail what do they do in the training so the training would begin with orientation the training would begin with understanding disability uh, getting to know the tandem cycle getting to know their partners and then simple just riding together so the captain and the stroker ride together they practice together they do this as a community and over time they barely even have to communicate verbally they get to know i get to know my captain so well that i know when my captain's tired when i need to push when the captain knows when i'm tired when we need to shift gears i know when a bump is coming there is lots of things happening on the cycle it's very dynamic but we understand all of this completely non verbally because on those altitudes you got to save energy you can't keep talking Mm-hmm. you can't keep telling me left right whatever you can't keep doing and then, and then you ride like half a day the whole day when do you rest is it like a resting period also in this or so on an average we ride about 50 kilometers a day which is not much roughly we start at 7 in the morning we should get there so i have done this last year and i did it in 8 days mm-hmm. this time we're going to do it in about 11 days so okay. yeah so it's it's much easier this time 50 kilometers is not very very difficult you have all day mm-hmm. so you start in the morning you can keep your pace take your time and even if you get there by about 132 to the next campsite still in good time no no i mean this is absolutely amazing it's scary as well as inspiring in a, at the same time is one of those things uh, i know 
you know, this is going to cost a bomb. So how are you raising money for this? I know I contributed to it yeah. on your crowdfunding uh, uh, web page and we put that link for others uh, on the comment section. But how are you raising money for this? Adventure sports of this nature, the biggest challenge is to raise funds. So we put up a crowdfunding link, outlays roughly about 18 lakhs that we have to raise. And uh, firstly, thank you for your contribution. No, no, I mean, I had to support this in any case. I mean, this is so amazing what you're doing. So people can contribute anywhere. For, for me, even if somebody contributes 200 rupees to it, I still would respect them the same as somebody contributing 2 lakh rupees. Companies can come forward or organizations can come forward and sponsor some of the things like somebody can sponsor the gear, maybe somebody can sponsor the travel, maybe somebody wants to sponsor t-shirts, whatever, or psych, anything. So, so tell me something, how does an event or an adventure like this changes the life of a disabled person? One of the reasons why we do adventure sports or outdoor sports and set up a not-for-profit called Adventures Beyond Barriers is because there are millions of people who are persons with disability in this country. I mean, it's like some 30, 40 million people in India alone, right? Way more than that. Way more than that. Wow. So we don't have the exact numbers. But if you go by the world statistics, you go by the world averages, you, and you do some math, the number is roughly about 200 million people with disabilities. 200 million people, that's almost 20% of our population. 15, yes. 15 to 20%. 15% so what, what the world statistics say is that any given developing country has roughly about 15% population which has some form of disability. You have such a large community of people with disability and we are the largest invisible minority population in the world. You haven't seen anybody, you don't know anybody personally, you don't have a single friend with a disability. You didn't go to school with somebody with disability. You didn't. You don't see us in restaurants. You don't see us in cinema houses or um, workplaces or public places. So you just never realize that this whole population exists. And uh, there is a lot of shame and stigma associated with disability in this country. So, so we're going to talk about the disability issue in detail. But my mm. question to you was that why adventure sport? I mean, why not train them to become skilled and, you know, there are other things. Let's figure out a way to get them employment. There are, you know, you hear of all these other initiatives, which is around training these people and, you know, getting them jobs, etc. Mm. You know, why would you want to, you know, use all your resources to make them do adventure sports? Well, simple. There are two reasons. One, because I love adventure sports. <laughs> well, that, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah. And so there is a selfish reason there. But I also believe that while it's important to train them in skills, like vocational skills, while it's important to educate them, all those are important things. But the most important thing is your mental attitude. Mm-hmm. And adventure sports and outdoor sports offers you an opportunity to really work on yourself, work on your attitude, work on your mental strength on your self-esteem, on your confidence, on your motivation. So so you are taking people with very, you know, who have literally very limited resources and confidence and you're directly taking them to the top of the world, literally, in that sense. Because after that, they're invincible. They come back and they can generalize it to almost anything in life. They know that if they can do this, they can do anything. 
that's an that's an amazing way to look at it right i mean so do possibly the most extreme thing you can and then all the other things seem very very easy so that's literally what you're pushing them to do absolutely so so let's start so uh, i'm going to give you an example so i i so vividly remember this uh we also run marathons etc and uh, i remember this girl we we were training this bunch of blind people to start running marathons so we let train. me re- let me repeat blind people to start running marathons why not you need feet to run you don't need eyes to run well but there's a huge crowd and you know there are all these roads there are khaddas on the road i mean how do you navigate just the way you do and do tumble down you pick yourself back up again and there's pushing and shoving even otherwise so somebody shoves me i shove back big deal <laughs> i never thought <laughs> and, about it that <laughs> and uh, and also we we pair them with sighted allies okay so every blind person is paired with a sighted ally and they run the marathon together so you're just like helping me see or navigate but otherwise we're running together and we're doing it together and apart from marathons you're also taking them for treks yes isn't that crazy right i mean you know when you're trekking there are stones there are you know you can just slip one wrong feet and you could be tumbling down the hill all these things can happen and that can happen in your city too in fact i've never had a injury in the mountains we only had injuries in I've, the city i've had most injuries in the city never once in the mountains well it said that crossing the road is more dangerous yeah, than climbing exactly. mount everest Absolutely. that's what kuntal who was uh, in the show last time told us so you <laughs> i are, agree you're literally taking that example even for uh, people with disabilities yes because while i'm walking in the city there are all kinds of ditches that appear out of nowhere I mean yesterday it was a nice smooth tarred road somebody came last night dug a deep hole and that's my death trap or you have uh, billboards at my face level so i smack my face i have uh, wires at my neck level so i'm practically dangling by those wires uh, branches coming out of nowhere you have um, dog poop people don't clean after their dogs um thank you so much but dog uh, owners please yes please. <laughs> and uh, all kinds of things so there are there are risks anyways no i, I understand and, there are and, risks right and and you taking this risk yourself is great but i still don't know it's difficult for us to convince healthy people to do these activities right absolutely normal people try convincing them to go for a trek try convincing them to cycle or do any of this it's difficult and how are you managing to convince differently able people people with disabilities to opt in for things like this how are their families taking this oh it's not easy it's not easy vishal just like your mainstream community has people who are, uh, who don't want to do adventure sports or who think it's too risky there are able bodied people whose parents say no 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 my 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 son or daughter will not go climb a mountain similarly even in the disability community is no different the first thing is deconstruct disability what is how do we define disability disability and so uh, to not do not able to do something but if i enable you to will it remain a disability absolutely no so so you see disability is not a physical thing it's it's a social construct is the way we design the world so the only disability is the one in the mind and the way the world is designed by handicaps come from the fact that this world is not designed for somebody who's blind is not designed for somebody who's in a wheelchair Mm-hmm. because if it was my disability never comes in the way at all 
So I think it is it is in a way the society labeling a set of people that you can't do this. More than labeling the society not creating equal opportunities. No, I mean which it's, cause, it's because they think yeah. they can't, they can't do it, right? I mean Correct. nobody so, can, could even thought about a blind person going and doing parasailing, right? I mean so now this this is the stereotype, right? That you decide for me as a able bodied person that I can't do this. So when I went for rehab that's exactly what what happened that when I went blind they told me all you can do is make cane or cane furniture or chalk so so tell me something I mean, before we get into your rehab and other things before give me an example tell me how did you convince a person and their family to mm. opt in for a tandem set tell me the story how did you do it talk to the person generate no, no, I'm, interest I'm, I'm talking about then, not then I'm, also I'm, I'm talking asking to, for a concrete example yeah. I'm saying give me an example of a person or not in tandem cycling in anywhere you know where you had to mm. go from scratch and it was the most toughest for you to convince them okay in for either running or yeah okay so there there is two girls and uh, out of family of seven five are blind they come from a pretty disadvantaged background economically and the father believes the girls are just meant to do house chores because anyways they're blind so what good are they and these two sisters were to fight to keep them getting education their father was convinced that it's no good to keep them in college then we convinced these girls why don't you come for a run with us and they were happy to come for a run and they came for a run and we saw that they were really doing well we started getting them to train a little bit and there was a marathon coming up so we said why don't we participate in a marathon would like to the girls both of the sisters jumped at the opportunity they said absolutely we would love that but our parents are not going my family is not going to allow and this is a marathon so we had to go and talk to what 42 kilometers 20 oh no 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 this was 10 10 kilometers and uh, we went and talked to our parents and we said we really would like them to do this we will take care of them we will be responsible this is how where we'll go this is who they'll be with all of that very reluctantly the father agreed very reluctantly interestingly these girls were phenomenal their first marathon they timed 52 minutes in under 10k 52 minutes even i can't do 52 minutes 52 minutes and they started getting podium finishes they started their their timings was better than professional marathoners no no absolutely i mean 52 minutes for a 10k is, is amazing so so what started happening was first professional marathoners used to say oh we have to pair up with a blind girl or oh, how slow will we need to run what's <laughs> no, up and now it was exactly the reverse question we're like ah no 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 can no. you run this can you run this what's your personal best and they would say oh 10 kilometers uh, it's 1 hour 5 minutes i'm like mm, add 5 more minutes <laughs> <laughs> and um, and i'm like sorry sir you don't qualify and they're like what what do you mean you don't qualify i'm like yeah you're too slow They were even too slow. I'm like, yeah, my girls are running in 52 minutes. That started happening. So we had really really excellent quality runners and then they started getting their personal best. They started uh, talking about these girls on news channels, talking dedicating their Boston marathons to these girls, getting these trophies, getting medals and all this started going back home. That when the when the father saw all these trophies, when the father saw their daughters in the news, in print, in TV, the next time around we we had a marathon we had to we have, we have to get there very early so 3 o'clock in the night we have to leave 3 o'clock in the night he comes and says make sure my daughters run well today mm. take good care of them but make sure they run really well the, the the only sad ending to this story is that the girl i'm talking about 
died at the age of 21 because of cancer. But she did not die as a blind girl. She died with an identity as a runner. And she had hundreds of runners who had come to wish her well when she died of cancer because she no longer carried that identity of a blind girl. That's really, really powerful. I think you've literally changed their life and lives of all the other people you are touching with your amazing initiative. So, so before we go deep into that, let, let's, let's get to your story. You are nothing less than an inspiration yourself. And uh, when we spoke last, you told me that it, at the age of 19, one fine day, you could not see. Mm. Tell me what happened that day. I was diagnosed with the condition uh, known as glaucoma when I was about 17. I'd gone for a regular eye checkup because I thought I had got a number. Before that, I had no uh, trouble with my eye at all. And uh, for some reason, the doctor on a hunch, on an absolute whim, decided to check my eye pressure on a crude instrument. The eye pressure turned out to be very high. And uh, he asked me to, my dad to get some more diagnostics done. When we did that, it was confirmed that I have a condition called glaucoma. So this is when you were 17? This is when I was 17. The diagnosis was handed to me literally like this. The, the doctor kept looking at me for about 15-20 minutes, peaked, poked, prodded, said nothing at all, no word. And about 20 minutes into it, he just looks at me says, you are going to go blind. And I'm like, really? Because... I ain't going blind. There's no way I'm going blind because I can see perfectly well. What the hell? I don't have any symptoms. I, there's nothing wrong with my eye. Why would I go blind? And he says, you have a condition called glaucoma and it's like a ticking time bomb and we don't know when. And, and there are no medicines? There's nothing you could have or some surgery or nothing could have been done that time? So there is medication, but the medication is not curative. The medication is preventative. So it's only to prevent or manage the condition. And in high-pressure glaucoma, which was in my condition, my, my condition was high-pressure glaucoma, my pressure was almost seven times out of normal. Seven times? Six to seven times out of normal. So it was very, very rampant. So I was on sulfur drugs. I was taking like four Dimox tablets a day sometimes, uh, eye drops. Uh, I went through surgery, all of that. And uh, until 19, I had lost about 50% of my sight. However, um, even with 50% of your remainder sight, it's a lot of sight. It's enough sight to fool yourself and to fool the world. So I was still driving around. Not that I recommend, but uh, yeah, I was still driving around. And uh, it's not difficult, actually. Especially in Pune, I can tell you that people, everybody, (laughs) they ride on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, and then... At, at 19, one morning I just woke up and, I, and that 50% I lost overnight. And when I woke up blind, I I thought I was, I'd woken up in the middle of the night. So I thought I should go back to sleep. Well, a couple of hours later, I get up again and it's still dark and I'm like, no way, this is, why can't I see anymore? And uh, I knew my study table, I knew exactly the things that were there and I bent down to to really see if I could see. And I kept bending down until um, there was a candle on a candle stand and that the wick of the candle poked my eye. I'm like, God damn it, I did not see that wick. I mean, that that's the moment when I really, it hit me that I'm gone blind. That was the moment I realized what it means to be blind. Because you can close your, 
close your eyes and walk around and all of that. But that is not blind. Blindness is when you have your eyes open and you do not have the choice to see. And who was the first person you called? Interestingly, I tried to pretend because my pa- I, it was too much of a traumatic thing for my parents also. Although they were from, I mean, they were, they knew someday it would happen. A brain, I guess, puts you in denial because it's too shocking or it's too traumatic. So it doesn't process it. So I never told anybody. I just walked around pretending to see. I knew my house very well, so I could walk around. And well, they figured it out because one day I was addressing the. I guess it was the next day or something. And uh, so for one full day, you didn't tell anybody you had gone mad. I never told anybody. One full day. They just they just figured it out. Maybe they figured it out sooner or later, but they just figured it out. I never told them I can't see anymore. I addressed the chair as dead. I was talking to the chair. And all of nineteen. I mean, this must be quite a shock to you. It was. Um, it's traumatic. There's no other word for it. It's traumatic. It's depressing. It's um, you feel angry. You feel. Uh, it's 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 not easy. It's it's a very difficult transition. So so once your parents came to know about this, once you came to know about it, how did you start dealing with this? Initially, of course, there's just depression or just I just hang, just do nothing, sit around, mop around. The the more unfortunate part is you you lose your friends also. It's not just my sight. I lost I lost my friends too, because and I don't blame them. I guess that. Happens because they just didn't know how to deal with me anymore. Because these are a bunch of boys. I would play cricket or go on the mountains or cycle with them, and uh, and I could no longer do these things with them. So if I'm in the part of the conversation and they're discussing about going up a mountain, I would assume that we're, I'm included, and then I'm all ready to go, only to realize nobody's coming for me. And then slowly realize that you never were included in that plan because well, they don't know how to take you. And and when this happened, what was the reaction of your college and you know your school and teachers and principal? How did they handle this? So I I essentially quit college, but I had quit college slightly before that because I was studying commerce. I'd done my twelfth prelims. I still remember the day I was reading uh, D. M. Mithani. It's a economics book by D. M. Mithani. Mm-hmm. I so vividly remember that day. I was reading that book. And I said, "This ain't education. I can't be reading about how many mangoes one needs to eat before you feel the 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 twelfth mango is worse than the first mango, and the eleventh is a little worse than that, in diminishing marginal utility." Yeah, and I'm I like, "Crap, that, man! Twelfth yeah. mango is just as awesome." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "This ain't education," because I'm just just not getting anything out of this. So I just threw the book out of the window. I said, I'm quitting education if this is education. And and what happens once you are, you know, once you go blind? Is there some kind of a therapy? I mean, what happens? How do you start dealing with? It? Is there a process? I mean, the professional thing to do, or or the the right way, right approach would be to get some rehab and counseling, and get to learn how to live independently as a blind person. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. And a couple of months into my blindness, I decided my parents and I decided that it would be wise for me to go and check myself in a rehabilitation center for six months and learn the ways of the blind. 
because you really have to relearn everything from putting toothpaste on a brush, which is quite a task, trust me, uh, especially when you're blind and sleepy. And I thought maybe the rehab center will teach me that. So and, and and you are the only son, or you have other siblings in your family? I have an elder sister. Your sister. Yes. So, so not just your parent; it is your sister also who must be like really traumatized with this episode. Absolutely, absolutely. It was it was a very very difficult time as a family. So I check into the rehab center, and uh, what happens there is very very interesting. So this is what happened there. So as soon as I check in, I'm shepherded into this room along with other newly blinded people who most of them are come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And uh, the first thing that hits me is the stink of the smell. The smell is terrible. The whole place is stinking. And I'm like, come on, my nose is working overtime. This place stinks. Can we do something about this? The same room is where we were served food. The way we were served food is you have chapatis thrown at you, literally thrown at you. And the rule is simple. If you can grab him, you can eat him. This is no way to treat a human being. I really, really felt that day that, you know, that, that I had lost my sight, I had not lost my dignity. And none of these people had lost their dignity. And then I was taken for counseling, quote-unquote counseling. And, and you have this whole um, round table full of some stalwarts. And uh, they, they kind of started talking to me. And, and I said, what can a blind person do to stand on his own two feet. What do blind people do? I did not know a single blind person up till that. I was the only blind person I knew. Not one single blind person. And I go to rehab and they're coming out of the woodworks. I mean, there's just blind people everywhere. And this is what they tell me at counseling. I'm like, what can blind, what do blind people do for a living? And they're like, what are you going to teach me? And they say, well, we're going to teach you how to make cane furniture. And I'm like, mm, nothing wrong with it. But you've heard of Neil Kamal, right? 20 years ago, Neil Kamal made, made a big splash. Mm -hmm. I'm like, nobody's going to be using cane furniture anymore. Everybody's going to move to plastic. And then they said, we'll teach you to make chalk. Again, come on, guys. Chalk. <laughs> no future in it. There must be something better. And then they do all kinds of whisper, whisper. And, and then they come up with this, yes, we have this course for you. It's a six-month course, and we will teach you how to become a telephone operator. Like, for real. Six months. All you've got to do is punch in a number and say hello, which I already know. So what are they going to teach me for six months? We know you didn't do any of that. And you yes, ended up becoming, uh, having a major degree in psychology. Psychology was still far away. Before that, what, what I asked them was, what are my choices? They said, these are your choices. I said, 20 years ago, IT was very, very hard. Everybody was talking about computers. I said, why can't I do something in computers? Why can't I make a career in computers? And they said, are you gone mad? They're like, the mental rehab is next door. I'm like, come on. <laughs> so you actually... So they said you got to learn computers. I wanted to do something that in which I could make a good career. And there's nothing wrong in making... In and this was like late 90s. Yeah. Like 1997, 98. Late 90s. 93, 95. 95. 95. Yeah, 95. Around 95, yes. And they're like, you're blind. How are you going to use a computer? You've got to accept reality. These were the words. You've got to accept reality now. And this is your reality. You are blind and you've got to accept that. I said, I accept I'm blind, but this is not my reality. Why wouldn't, why can't I do computers? And they said, you can't. I said, you don't decide for me what I can or can't. So clearly the system 
completely failed you and i don't think so the system was designed to reach your vision and your goal how did you do that well i quit rehab <laughs> that's the best thing to do quit rehab quit rehab if anybody is listening the worst thing to do is rehab quit rehab and then so how did you take one hour of your own life so that that one hour probably taught me way more and and the best thing was when i came out of rehab after an hour my parents were still sitting so outside you didn't go into rehab i was there for an hour and and i had checked in for 6 months that counts um, but but the best part of this whole thing is my parents were still sitting outside and i'm like what what are you guys doing here and they're like what took you so long and i can't ask for better supportive parents than that they let me decide for myself hats off to your parents i think uh, they probably were your absolute backbone which kind of let you get here 100% more than 100% and when i stepped out of that rehab i thought okay i'll go to some coaching classes there are lots of these training institutes mushrooming now and maybe they'll teach me computers none of them had thought of a blind person coming nothing then if they can teach computers because here i am asking them to teach me computers when you can't see the screen and they're like but you can't see the screen i'm like yes i can't see the screen bit of a technical problem yes but we'll figure it out <laughs> So uh, how did you learn computer how do you code or how do you program without looking at the screen I buy harder the whole damn thing and this is so in, 90, just, in the late 90s yeah, you were using a 486 and, and 486 yeah. and pentiums and my my pride was my 500 MB hard drive oh wow 500 MB was yeah. a big hard drive that big Seagate Seagate yeah and um, I said well if nobody's there to teach me I I still got a brain on my shoulder so I can teach myself and everybody around me was still sighted right so that's the first prototype of a human screen reader grab them and make them sit beside you and read the damn screen i will learn it doesn't matter if you don't know computers so you used to type dir yeah. and directory used to appear yeah. on your dos so i would know absolutely so if i if i thought i had pressed something wrong i would start all over again and how many times you've accidentally deleted your work oh <laughs> <laughs> that I would be very careful with but I have crashed systems and I've done all kinds of things but that's the best way to learn I feel so the best way to learn you learn coding you learn coding I what I started doing was uh started doing coding uh in, in but very much were you learning coding so I I did C C++ and then Windows 3.11 came and then I started learning about communications technology So that's what I started doing. And you must be using Word and Lotus one two. Lotus one two three. Yeah, that was the time when yeah. Word Star and all these things were there. Then they were, you debase. Debase. Debase one yeah. two three. Yeah. So all of those. Wow. And uh, you're reminding me of my days using computers. But that's such ancient technology now. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so ancient. So ancient. Yeah. So. But we had to start from there. But that was incredible because. My first break came from Data Pro Information Technologies Limited. If you heard of email boxes, and there was to be even before the internet came in, we were setting up email communication email boxes. So just like post office boxes, people could actually come and collect their yeah. mails wow. through uh, these private post office boxes that are collected that 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 they can rent out. So this is before VSNL launched their email. Correct. So uh, I started working in. Uh, with data pro information technologies and setting up this communication this is the canodias right the the guys who own data pro i don't know okay. i never worked with the, the owners i worked in this organization and uh, as a consultant if you heard of zmail yeah yeah of course yes so zmail i was part of i was working extensively with zmail 
and uh, then VSNL, and then uh, ETH Dishnet happened. Then we started working on OCR and uh, OCR technology with CDAC and iLeap. It, it got canned. Yeah, this is the language version, right? iLeap was also the Lippy, they also had Lippy. Hmm. Yeah. Correct. So, but this was also part of the OCR engine and the uh, text to speech engine, all of that happening at the same time. So, started working in that. I spent about six years in, uh, in IT. How do you used to actually use your computer without reading the screen? So, about a year, year and a half later, roughly, Windows 3.1 came and with it came JAWS, which is job access with speech. This is a screen reader that reads out the entire screen to me. So, for the first time, I could start using the computer completely independently. And this technology completely, absolutely liberated me. Wow, so technology is the one which actually came back to to help you. Absolutely. Because now I no longer needed anybody to read. My reading and writing came back. And that's a phenomenally powerful tool to have. Your and, reading and, and, writing. and then as part of that, what all projects were you involved in? So I was in, involved with a lot of internet-related projects. I was related with a lot of hardware. Uh, I was doing a lot of hardware work. So computer hardware is very, very like Lego. It's, you it's, have all those PCBs which you are supposed to put in the slots. Absolutely. Nothing fit the wrong place. Yeah. So it was the perfect thing for the blind, actually. So you actually assembled computers. Right? I have. I assembled computers and all of that. And back then, it was all about assembling computers. Yeah. Nobody went out and bought a branded computer. So there computer. was a power supply. You used to buy the motherboard. Then you used to buy the VGA card. and Mix match everything yeah. and the price and everything is a mix match. And you just fix it together. The interesting thing is nobody, even today, opens their computer if something's wrong. Well, I've opened a lot of my computers. Most people don't. Yeah. Most people are scared of looking what's inside and then they look what's inside and they get very scared. And it's not scary. It's actually very, very simple. So, so, so tell me something. Aren't you an outlier? Is, is it you know, possibly why the rehab centers want to not you know, make people learn computers or make them do adventure sport? Is because they consider you an outlier and think this is not what everybody can do. It's an outlier. It's what everybody can do. But they don't want to empower. There are there are people who want to keep us disempowered. Because what will happen if the entire community gets empowered, then what happens to their organization? That charities, no longer charities will come. So charity is just about humoring the person until the next day. And this is not me. This is Oscar Wilde who said it in 1871. The charity is a failed model. Charity is never about empowering somebody. If you think about it, Africa receives the most amount of aid and has been receiving the most amount of aid for years together. Forever, yeah. And nothing has changed. Because all that aid is charity. The Vishal Gondal Show will be right back after this break. In a world where people are busy playing Mendicoat at Diwali parties, two men decide to go all in in the river. Uh, don't you mean on the river? On the river. Oh, yeah. Two men will go where no one has ever gone before. To a studio with no air conditioning or Coke Zero to talk about poker. Hey, order lo na, yaar. Koi kya hai bakwas? TheSpartanPoker.com presents Mera Kaam Poker. Hosted by Azeem Banatwala. The best comedian in the world, according to himself. And Peter Abraham. Not related to John. New episodes out every Wednesday on the IBM podcast app or any other podcasting app you use. And for all our listeners who want to try out their hand at poker, 
you can log on to thespartanpoker.com register yourself as a user with the promo code IVM and you will get 200 bonus cash which you can use to play poker for free see you at the tables so so you decided to take your destiny in your hands rather than having somebody else control it and that first took you to learn computers yes get a career in computers yes and then what how did you get into psychology so i did computers for about 6 years and uh by then i had helped tra- set up training institutes by then i had worked with the government to frame it policy for accepting computer or it as a career viable career option for the blind and included in the list of the career options and i was doing quite well but i proved my point and while i was uh doing it i was also starting to get into artificial intelligence and programming machines to do what the human brain does in terms of using it to empower lives and that's when i started reading up about the human brain and that fascinated me that was i believe my my first torrid love affair so cognitive sciences is absolutely. really exciting absolutely and i realized that it's such a marvelous piece of three pound flesh that we have on top of our shoulders but it's just so marvelous because what we take for granted is the simplest of things to make a machine do it is so mm, complex so complex absolutely so so, so tell me something uh, you know since you are also in the cognitive space without having your brain to burden with sight which takes so much of your cognition power does it actually improve your other cognitive powers do you actually experience that so what happens is yeah probably because 74% is your sensory modality so suddenly a large chunk of your brain's processing now your visual cortex is freed up in my case for example when when my visual cortex is no longer being used for visual processing the brain doesn't let the visual cortex just sit there idle the brain says you got to do some work man you're not going to sit there so it starts doing auditory processing so if you put my brain under the scanner my visual cortex would be doing functions that it's not designed to do such as auditory processing uh, memory all kinds of other things that it's not designed to do No no I actually seen you use your phone and you know use your uh, text to speech I mean that speech is so fast I can barely understand what they're talking and <laughs> you're processing everything but people read fast right so and and you read fast. fast over and as a matter of practice right over a period of time you start reading fast and start comprehending what you read so, so can you tell me a state uh, like a sentence how your ocr or your uh, your voice reader tells you how fast you like you want to like Can you tell that sentence? Oh, speak it and say. Yeah, speak it and say. I'm in the middle of something. So I didn't get it. <laughs> you keep listening to it, you get it. Give it 18 years of uh, just listening to it. So, so basically, you can understand speech at literally 2x the speed. Yeah, because speech is what I'm listening to all the time. My screen reader is something that I'm listening to all the time, practically from morning to night. Again, so neural plasticity is something that happens. uh it's it's very much something a brain is designed to do you also start developing your cognitive processes in terms of for a visual person if you see something or you read something you just remember where you saw it you don't remember the content because remembering the content would mean more cognitive effort in my case i may not have the choice to get access to that content again which means i have to remember it. so you can remember phone number you can remember so if it's important to me i will remember absolutely so for example i do trainings and i meet people i remember names but that's because it's 
important to me. And we all is growing up. We used to remember so many phone numbers, right? Yeah. Now we, we have lost to. it. Now we have lost that art because of the phone book. Correct. Because of mobiles. Yeah. We used to borrow books from the library and we used to borrow different books and then we had to return those books. So we had to remember information. And we did remember information. Now all you remember is, ah, I googled it somewhere. So it's just the way we, we now process information differently. So, so, so which degree did you go and uh, get for psychology and how did they enroll you for that? So, yeah, six years later, I thought, well, I've done my bit here in computers. I'm done with it. And I would like to go and really pursue psychology and mental health and study the brain. And, and that should be easy, I thought. So I went to enroll myself back to college. So here I was, big, almost back to school. And um, they said, you can't study psychology because you're blind. I'm like, whoa, here we go again. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's a science. So I, think, I think when somebody tells you, you can't do something, that's your cue that I have to do this and oh, do it better man. than anybody else. That's the word you should not use with me. Don't tell me you can't do something. Just be careful about using that word. with me. Because if I really, really want to, I will spend the rest of my life doing it or trying to do it. So, so how did you convince the college to get you in that course? So there was a lot of back and forth. And then they said, we have a rule. I said, excellent. And this is an old college, a hundred years old college. I'm like, wow. Which, which college is this? Ferguson College. Ferguson, Pune. Okay, yeah. that's a big college. Yeah. And uh, I said, wow. So you mean to say, hundred years ago, somebody wrote, the hundred years from now, there will come a man who will be blind and will ask you for admission to the psychology department. Deny him. <laughs> I mean, come on, show me the rule. Because if you have such a rule... And what was the problem? Why couldn't we not have... Because experiments, uh, apparatus, how can a blind person do it? How will he work with patients? Blah, blah, blah. Total crap, if you ask me. But, uh, so, so how did you how did you got get the turnaround? Because there was no such rule. Okay. Because I gave them two options. I said, show me the rule. If they're excellent, if you can show me the rule, it's time we change it. And if there ain't no such rule, there is no such rule. You just give me the admission. You have to give me the admission. And I drafted a legal sounding letter <laughs> at home. <laughs> <laughs> and the minute you send a legal sounding letter to any institution, they shit in the pants. And they're like, okay, fine. So after that, it was pretty good in Ferguson, no doubt about it. But when I went for my master's, their shit hit the fan. Because half the staff wanted me there and the other half did not. Mm-hmm. And the half that did not want me there made absolutely clear that they did not want me there. But why? They just did not want me there. Just did it. So this is what they told me on my face. You'll be no good. How will patients work with you? This is not a subject for blind people today. And you are wasting somebody else's See, opportunity yeah. and all that. And I'm like, whoa. And the person who told me this, that you would be no good as a therapist. I still respect him because he's a great researcher. He's a great scientist. He's a very senior theorist. And respectfully, I had to tell him this, that you're a great theorist, sir, but don't try your hand at therapy. I want to be a therapist, not a theorist. And they would like draw scatter diagrams on the board and say, Divyanshu, what's the scatter? Give us a solution. I'm like, give me the scatter, I'll give you the solution. They're like, not a problem. I'm like, not my problem either. Get out of class. Oh, no problem. It's the same outside as inside. (laughs) (laughs) Or they would give me a D grade. I'm like, excellent. Because you know that I know. You can't give me a F grade because if it fail me, it goes for re-evaluation to somebody else. And I know very well that I've not done so bad that I'll fail. So the best you can do is D, no problem. 
how did you end up the f- finally passing the course? Oh, I passed out very well with a B plus because you average it out. You still have the opportunity to get A's and O's in others, right? You average it out. B plus is not bad, right? Absolutely, man. it's very good. And for me, my objective was to get the degree and get out of there. And after the degree, what did you do? I was the first to get placed from my batch. First to get placed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and where did you get placed? Tata Service or Tata Business Services, TBSS, wow. Tata Business. And, and what was your role there? I was working as senior executive HR. Directly into HR. Huh? Yeah, well, that, that happened. That happened by. And that happened quite by accident in a way because uh, I was invited as a panelist to an MBA college and uh, one of the uh, senior HRs from TBSS was also a panelist. He said, would you like, he gave me an offer right there. He said, would you like to work with us? I said, are you asking? I'm ready for the offer. I'm going to be finishing my course sometime soon and I'll be happy to. And, And you know, didn't they have a challenge, you know? You cannot see, you're blind and you know, how do you kind of cope up? And because companies, while they yes. say all these things yes. that we are open for differently able people and of course now there is a different trend but yes. you know, 15 years, 10 years back that was not the case. Yes. So 2005, uh, when this happened, it wasn't the case at all. But um, interestingly, it's the people that make the organization. Right? And the people in the decision-making capacity only ask me one question. We want to know how you're going to do your work and what will enable you to do your work. As long as you can get their work done, it doesn't matter to us if you do it with your eyes closed or your eyes open. And and the decision makers there stood by it. And they continue to be my mentors even today. They're amazing. So let's, let's just recap, right? You turn blind at the age of 19. You go into rehab. Don't complete your rehab. Get into computers. Become very good at it. And then suddenly get into psychology. Finish your psychology course and get into the corporate world. After that, somehow you leave everything and get into adventure sports. Now, how did that happen? I mean, how, you know, I can still understand this part, but this whole thing of adventure, what connects adventure in your life? I mean, you know, what happened? How did you get into this? So I run two organizations. In 2006, I quit Tata's and I started my own organization. So I continue to work with corporates in their facilitation. But I also have continued to be an adventure. So growing up, I was always climbing mountains or cycling or climbing trees or going underwater. No, but that's, and that's that pretty much, up. you know, as most young people do Correct. that. Right? But I always wanted to be in the mountains. I always wanted to, to make people fall in love with the mountains, with the outdoors, because I believe that only if you fall in love with something can you protect it. You can't read about it in books and go to the mall on weekends and then talk about protecting the environment. Mm-hmm. They don't know what environment. And that's all I wanted to do. And, and of course, I love sport. But when I went blind, that was the one thing that was very, very difficult for me to continue to do because there was no opportunities at all. So, and of course, there were other priorities that took over. So there were other things to do. There were other things to learn. And adventure sport took quite a backseat. And uh, when I managed to do other things, settle down in terms, quote-unquote, settle down. I don't know what is settling down, but... I started thinking back of going back to adventure sports. I started climbing mountains and I started getting a bunch of people together to uh, escort me through the mountains, who would escort me, guide me through the mountains, who would start doing stuff that uh, everybody does. Um, because often they would say, oh, we'll pick this easy one. We'll pick this mountain. Why? Why we pick this mountain? Oh, it's easy. I'm like, why would you pick something that's easy? Oh, but then it's risky. I'm like, come on, you, you guys are doing it. So let's figure out how to do it safely with I don't want to do it just because it's easy. So, so again, a, a, a odd question. Since you anyway can't see, how what difference does it make whether it's an easy or a difficult mountain? 
Not for me, but for them. I'm not the one who's getting anxious. They're the ones who are getting anxious. You are, fine. you are fine doing any. I was absolutely fine. I trust you. You're, if you're my guide in the mountains, I will trust you. If you tell me to step somewhere, I will step exactly there and nowhere else. So, okay. This was all trekking in a way, mm. not mountaineering. Yeah. Which so, was the... So, trekking, uh, even if it mean, meant climbing, rock climbing, that, whatever it is. That's where we... No, but what was the first serious adventure sport you did, which was like... Which people said you can't do. So, about now, almost 10 years ago, when this whole adventure thing started coming back to me, what also came back very strongly was me wanting to fly. Because that was something I wanted to, to fly. do. fly. Yes, to fly. That was something that I wanted to do as a child, right from childhood. And I think everybody wants to fly. Everybody looks up to the sky and, and says, hey, it would be amazing to fly with the birds, right? And then you grow up and the world tells you you can't do it. And you start believing the world. I said, well, that's what I always wanted to do as a child. And that's amazing. That's fun. I want to fly. So why, why can't I fly? I thought that should not be that difficult. I started asking instructors and, and they started freaking out because they said, but you're blind. How can you fly? I'm like, what does blindness have to do with flying? And it took me seven years, seven years to find one instructor, one instructor who would believe and say, okay, why not? So I would ask. Literally, at the end of it, I would ask three instructors every single day, can you teach me to fly? And I want to fly by myself. I don't want a tandem. I don't want to... I want to learn how to fly by myself. But how, but how can you... Do, I mean, how can you do that if you can't see the terrain? How do you fly by yourself? <laughs> so, it's a myth that pilots fly solo. All pilots are looked after by a whole set of people. There's a whole team that's looking after them. There's, there's the ground control crew, there's the launch crew, there's, there's the ATC. There's the, for, for regular flights, there's the air traffic controllers. There are all kinds of people looking after the pilot. The pilot has the best seat on the house, but he's he's constantly receiving so, radio communication. So we always used to hear the autopilot flies everything. So that's really what it is. It's everything is autopilot. In your commercial flights, practically, pilots are going to hit me for it. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you might as well have a blind pilot. Yeah. But then I don't fly commercials. Okay. Um, that's also because there will be no passengers who will want to fly <laughs> yeah. if they know there's a blind pilot. I fly gliders, which are non-powered aircrafts. So, so how did you get onto the first glider and which insane person let you <laughs> So, So this is, this is the story of how it happened. So what started happening was over the time, over, over a period of time, I started getting a pattern. And the pattern that I started noticing was that when I approached instructors or people, they would first see my blindness. The minute they saw my blindness, they would be very awkward. They would freak out. And my next question would be, would you teach me to fly? And they would be like, yes, yes. Or finally they would say no, because I would be persistent. Mm -hmm. So then I changed my tactic. I started calling people up. Mm -hmm. Now we're equals, right? They yeah. don't know I'm blind. Yeah. So I would ask all sorts of questions and all of that. And this is what happened that day that I asked. So it was Anita, who is my instructor's wife. And uh, she and my instructor, Avi, they run a school together called Temple Pilots. It's, it's a flying school. And, and, I and call they're in uh, Kamshit. Kamshit, that's Kamshit, right. Yeah. By the way, I've been told to go there a number of times, but my wife just doesn't let me go. She's oh. like, no, you cannot do paragliding on your own. So I've not been and there. Has your, has your wife's... Hmm. Does she know that I fly? <laughs> well, after this episode, I'm sure she's going <laughs> to let me do it. 
learning scuba scuba so tell yeah. me about scuba right i mean that's again one of those hardcore things which you have to train for yes. and so scuba is something that is still work in progress because it's it's quite um for me for me particularly uh, scuba is more difficult quote unquote because of my struggle with claustrophobia yes claustrophobia so i have claustrophobia uh, that's a that's a huge huge thing to battle against but when you are how uh, do you have claustrophobia since you can't see how do you know whether you are in a box or you're not in a box claustrophobia is not about uh whether you can be claustrophobic even in this large room and you can be claustrophobic even inside the elevator it's an emotion like it's an it's a build up of anxiety where you start feeling trapped in you feel you can't breathe and i guess it's also underwater i have very little control because i have no sensory perception see what happens is when i'm flying i'm still using my senses i'm still in you control you can hear you can i'm still doing things myself with scuba the biggest thing you use the biggest sense you use or the only sense you would actually dependent on is your visual sense and you take that away what's left and when you go under water what do you see when I mean, you can't i can't see it's an experience it's extremely meditative the fact that i can uh, just calm myself down overcome my claustrophobia so i have i've also just slept for a few little little while under water literally gone to sleep for a couple of minutes taken up it's beautiful it's very very so scuba is anti all adventure sports because it's it's a lazy man sport the lazier you are the more you'll enjoy the doing scuba the more you'll do enjoy doing scuba and the more you'll stay underwater because you're consuming less oxygen that's an interesting way to put it so all the lazy people out here <laughs> it's time to move your asses and do scuba diving <laughs> yeah and after scuba you did the your solo cycling the tandem cycling yes. from which you did last year yes, tell obviously. me more about that so i've always loved cycling and um something that i did as a sighted person and then there were no tandem cycles here however i got one tandem cycle and uh, one of my friends i started cycling and then one of the cycling friends said hey you know what two months later we're going to manali to khardungla why don't you sign up and come with us manali to khardungla interesting why not <laughs> then so i think like, the pattern is that we have to give you the most crazy challenge yeah. and you will sign up for that and uh, i think if elon musk <laughs> is listening we have a volunteer to go to mars already here the first blind volunteer <laughs> so i talked to him so, and so would you by the way sign up for a for a trip to mars if uh, you were you were offered mars or moon or one of the space trips it make it very touristy then no so you want to like do it really hard I mean, do something. I get to do something, and and there is more fun and elements. Maybe we'll have another show yeah. only dedicated to that trip. But yeah, I think that's the pattern, man. I mean, yeah. you are. There has to be know, a challenge. You are a superhero. You are truly a superhero. If there is no challenge, it's going to be boring. There has to be a challenge. You have to push you, your. But your you see standard. challenge, right? I mean, there is challenge coming to you, and you know you. Or actually, in this case, challenges are seeking you, and I thrive on challenges. and every opportunity which helps me stretch myself every opportunity that helps me raise the bar a little bit i ask myself what's the worst that's going to happen gonna the worst fail. yeah the worst is going to be i'll fail but that's not big deal i fail all the time even if i fail i can i can start again right and and i would never know if i have the potential if i never start the fear of failure stops everybody from doing things which they are meant to do but in your case 
since you failed at every step for you failure was the natural instinct yeah. you were like how worse can it be than this absolutely and and that's one thing that i really really am happy to my school for because they failed me in kindergarten <laughs> I mean, who the hell failed in kindergarten well that's a good starting point so they were i was in intensely academic school and they failed me in kindergarten and i would have not remembered this but i had very good friends oh who kept reminding you absolutely so coming back to how i ended up cycling so this friend of mine signed me up i'd never been there in that that route here we were thinking of going in two months about two weeks later my friend says i'm really sorry i think i can't do this so he cops out <laughs> so your friend who actually invited you to do this cops out yes who was actually planning all the logistics and everything so in my head i was committed right i had signed up so come what may now i was going to do it i decided to do the whole logistics and everything on my own and uh, go on this route and that's what we did and we did it in about 8 days and uh, interestingly every single professional cyclist we met said this is not possible in under 12 days you need 12 days to do this at least you got a long, long cycle you got 50% less oxygen you got five mountain passes and uh, it's not possible i think now we know the theme whenever the word impossible comes to you you do it that think- was no no there there it was not like that my my tickets were booked for 9 days later simple as that okay <laughs> so i had to get it done in 9 days and we did it in 8 days but uh, but what was more thing was that people just keep naysaying but i mean my point is that you know there are so many naysayers in the world and there are so many people who don't do things because of some or the other excuse you know and in your case it is literally that you know that you just needed somebody to tell you you can't do something and you go ahead and do it that too with the disability but what kind of really is like you know completely inspires me is that how you are helping others to do it i mean doing it yourself is di- is different right you take your own risk you decide on your own but why is it important for you to get other disabled people experience this it's simple because uh, the joy i get out of this what what i derive out of doing all of this is what i want to share and for me this greater joy in sharing your joy this greater joy in sharing what you have to see those transformations in front of you this is what has changed my life this is what has helped me this is what enriches me and why not make it accessible why not make those of same opportunities available to millions of people who have been told you can't do this i'm in a position of privilege and it's my duty to give back it's it's a crime if you're sitting in a position of privilege and not do anything about it and and there are so many people who have the resources to do exactly what you did and more but they still don't do it how do you not only get the mental strength but how do you get the financial resources to make this happen i work hard and uh, for me it's simple that if you're driven by purpose money is money is just a side thing money will come is your is your purpose very very clear are the reasons why you're doing it clear is your focus clear is uh, are you authentic are you transparent money is very very a, a by product it it happens it comes so so i'm sure the the people listening to the show and you know friends and other people they know or they know of somebody who is disabled if we know of somebody like this how can we 
help them connect with you and how can they start their transformation so i run a not for profit called adventures beyond barriers foundation i uh, i set this up about two and a half years ago and we work with cross disability so no matter what your disability you might be blind blind and deaf paraplegics quadriplegics amputees they can get in touch with us and we do a variety of adventure and outdoor sports so from uh, summiting mount everest and doing treks to everest base camps to a lot of treks in the sayadris rappling rock climbing we do marathons across the country triathlons duathlons we do um, tandem cycling scuba diving paragliding all kinds of outdoor adventure sports so whatever the person wants to do and how, what do they have to, they have to sign up they or? just have to sign up they just have to say they want to do this and then we sit down with them understand why they want to do it we don't do it for any records that's for sure if you want to do it because you want some record and do some guinness record and do some stunts that's not that's not what we do and and where could these people be based anywhere in the world anywhere in india any what is your absolutely they can be they can be anywhere in the world uh, some of the things happen here in pune some happen in up north some happen uh in various cities so it it really depends so the very first thing we do is once a person expresses interest in a particular thing we first understand their needs we understand what all are the needs what is the disability and uh, what are the safety protocols we'll have to have in place so we, we put safety first and do they get some kind of certification yes they also get certification so for example you could be a paraplegic you could be an amputee but you could be pari certified and and how can able bodied people help you i mean so once of course there are the disabled so people. adventures beyond barriers is not just meant for persons with disability we are an organization focused on persons with disability as well as able bodied people to do adventure and outdoor sports together and for us inclusion is more important and we do all our outdoor and adventure sports inclusive so, so what is the purpose so, behind abbf the purpose behind setting up abbf is is fundamentally very very simple if you ask me what is my biggest challenge as a person with disability today and what has been my biggest challenge over the past 20 years most people would think it's my blindness most people would think it's disability but you're absolutely wrong the biggest challenge is not my disability the biggest challenge are social attitudinal barriers that we face every single day those are the mountains we have to climb every day these attitudinal barriers that we face do not stem out of malice or ill intent or because people are bad they simply stem from the fact that the mainstream community doesn't know any person with disability there's no contact there's no awareness there is no empathy and empathy will build only when you really get to know somebody empathy is when you start discovering about each other and for us the best way to shatter these stereotypes prejudices misunderstandings misconceptions is get these two communities to come and play together and, and is this a unique problem in india or this is a problem everywhere in the world this is more unique in developing countries more unique in in a country like india primarily because in india there is still shame and stigma associated with disability so many of persons with disability who are never introduced to the world no but i'm i'm see being disabled and doing activity and working in computer programming is now getting normal still but doing adventure mm-hmm. is still extreme even yeah. in the us i would say 
given the fact that they are yes. such a litigious society nobody yes. will <laughs> let you do all of these things right because of just the danger of getting sued see there is an element of risk in everything all adventure sports there is an element of risk however the element of risk for person with disability is no, is not more than an able bodied person because we ensure very high safety standards we ensure adaptive equipment is in place we ensure we have safety protocols we have we have trained instructors so it's not that this is a misconception that simply because i'm a person with disability i'm a high risk as an adventure sports the, there is a slight degree of risk which is slightly higher than rest but it's not that high it's it's really not bravado it's really not a uh, crazy suicidal so this is adventure this is not extreme sport so i think that's the difference between what you're trying to put together like like when i'm flying would is that an adventure sport or an extreme adventure sport well i will call it an extreme adventure sport since you can't see but but if i say that we've other ways we built our way around it so that my not being able to see does not matter but then then it's definitely safer that's it so we ensure safety in contingency so for example we had contingencies like for example if my radio failed then what then we had a boombox mm-hmm. if that if somebody ran away with that boombox then what then my instructor actually would shout out instructions instructions loudly and then we would see how far that goes and we try every method out now nobody can run away with my instructor's voice right <laughs> absolutely the vishal gondal show will be right back after this break hi i'm may and i'm a huge fan of the indie music scene in our country a scene that's relatively underground even though it sometimes speaks its head overground but there's no shortage of talent and i get the privilege of interviewing some of the most awesome musicians on my show i've had the likes of euphoria crush kale hardcore randolph korea i've had singer songwriters folk singers electronic music producers playback singers rappers fusion artists instrumentalists classical musicians and so on whether mainstream or not these people have chosen to release their original music and these are the people currently currently shaping the direction in which our music scene is heading. Join me on my show every Monday and tune in to discover the unique talent coming out of India today. You can catch Made in India on your favorite podcasting app or our very own IBM podcast app. So I think with ABBF it's quite clear you want to help other people both disabled as well as able bodied to kind of come together. Yes. Now in this mission of yours how can people help? How can people contribute? So the very first thing to do is come and experience. Because when you come and experience, you discover so much about the lives of persons with disability as well as go back with the change perspective on your own life. You also realize that as individuals, we have such tremendous power to influence change, to make this world a better place. We've had CEOs and MDs of software companies of large organizations who never even knew that I could use a computer. of like blind people can use computers and they came on a trek or they came on a marathon with us and they they started talking to us they realized that this is what we do and they go back to the organizations and say hey you know what i mean these bunch of blind programmers why can't we hire them and they turn out to be more loyal employees and hundreds of employment opportunities were created just after one marathon or one trek 
for example, there's this prominent builder from Pune where I come from. And all of 56 years old, he comes and runs a marathon with us, has built multiple buildings throughout his life. He's been, he, he was in the construction business for 36 years, only to come and run with us to realize the importance of accessible infrastructure. And when he learns about that, he, on that, at the end of that marathon, he says, I promise you every single building from now on I will build will be made accessible. And he's like, I'm not doing it because it, uh, it's a nice thing to do. I'm doing it because it's the best business sense. Because it's not just for persons with disability. It's great for persons who are temporarily disabled. It's great for pregnant ladies. It's great for children. It's great for senior citizens. It's great for everybody. Because you are changing people's mindset, you are you are showing them the extreme, and if you know people can do that, you know programming and you know using a computer is much much simpler in that sense. Yes, and it's about paradoxical giving people paradoxical experience. So people come with this belief that oh, blind people means this is this, and then suddenly you're giving them this completely paradoxical experience. Now they no longer can hold their old belief. That has to go away because now this experience is an evidence they cannot refute. So I, I think I think the drive, the point you are really driving is that, as I, as I said, that the the disability is in people's own thoughts. It's what is stopping them from doing bigger things in life and challenging themselves is their own inability to believe in themselves. Yes. And what you really do is help people discover that. Absolutely. And in this whole process while ABBF is happening and everything else is going on, at your personal level, what are your ambitions? Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Uh, for sure, I see myself growing potatoes and tomatoes. That's for sure. I don't see myself... You'll be a farmer? I'll be growing my own food for sure. Okay. Producing my own... Uh, I'll be producing what I consume. I don't see myself living in a city, so I, I see myself living amidst mountains and about in the midst of nature. And any other big adventure coming up in your mind you want to do? Oh, lots. I want to travel the world on my cycle. I want to make this world a better place. So I want to see a lot more uh, persons with disability doing mainstream adventure sports. I want to see all the adventure bodies in this country to be certified as disability experts so that they can take on more persons with disability. I want to see schools in it. I want to see the end of special schools. I really, really want to see the end of special schools. I want a more inclusive world. So I know recently the government has come up with a policy around disability and there are so many things happening around it. So what are the good things out of it and what is still lacking and what would be your suggestion to the government to do actually? From my perspective... The government, of course, needs to work on legislation. However, it also needs to work on legislation with spirit. Because just having policies does not help. Being able to translate those policies at ground level is very, very important. Protecting the rights of persons with disability is what the government can do in a big way. And that's what they can do. I think that's that's the most important because one thing they're working on is making at least the public infrastructure more accessible. I know there are new buildings and other things are getting, uh, you know, wheelchair access and stuff like that. That's all. That's all happening now. Yes, it's it's that's a good thing. 
we have the accessible india campaign going on and uh, so there are at least we're moving in the right direction we still have a very very long way to go starting with getting the exact number of persons with disability in this country so when you don't have the exact number of persons with disability your policies are all meant for uh, uh, your policy decisions are skewed your budgets are skewed so starting from there we have a long way to go but at least we're starting somewhere so tell me uh, we spoke about your plans for the next 10 years but more importantly what is the long term future of your organization where do you see abbf going in the next 10 20 years the long term vision of uh, abbf is to be able to scale it up because we are the only premier organization in the world doing inclusive adventure sports with the aim to create empathy with the with the with the aim to create social transformation so we want to do this not just in our country but we have invitations to do this in tahiti we have invitations to start this in africa we have invitations to start this in bangladesh and sri lanka and we would like to scale it up because these are issues that are universal these are struggles of persons with disability across we're seeing such amazing results and transformations in the past two and a half years with our work right here in this country that we would like to scale it up and no no absolutely i think you know this is one thing which can truly go global so coming to your global ambitions you are taking risks literally every day are you fearing death not at all so what do you fear interesting question probably getting to see getting my side back <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is your fear is that one fine day you'll wake up and get your side back yeah and that be traumatic imagine what i'd see well yeah clearly the world is <laughs> The way the world is going today, you don't want to see some of those things. You bet. <laughs> But uh, yeah, death death is not such a big, not not something that I'm fear about. That's a given, and and that's going to happen anyways someday. I can't be thinking about it and be the living dead. Make the most of every moment you've got. On fourth December ninety eight, I was declared dead. Technically, I had tuberculosis. My lungs had failed, and uh, I should not have been. alive that day or the day after that or the day after that and uh, here i am not just alive but thriving wow that's that's, that's inspiring and that's amazing but <laughs> what i learned on that operating table was that uh, was was the line from this book called tuesdays with mori which came back to me that line said once you learn how to die you learn how to live and that day i really really learned how to live and uh, every day is a bonus so there's nothing to really What about? So, so coming to your days, tell me what is a typical day in your life? What the, time do you wake up? The typical day in my life is there is no typical day. Every day is so unique from so, each so, other. But what is your ritual? What is your morning ritual? Morning ritual is just I, I get up pretty early. Uh, I get up around five-ish, five thirty-ish. I have a beautiful terrace, so and you live alone. I live alone. Mm-hmm. I've been living alone for about eighteen years now. Uh, I make myself a cup of chai. and i spend some time by myself on the terrace uh that's my heaven and um and then what's your so typical breakfast can we make and who makes breakfast so i i make some breakfast or then i just um i have a uh cook or i make breakfast and and what is it or i have now a person right next door who who started this breakfast service so i just order in 
she makes homemade breakfast and homemade lunch. So I just order in because cooking takes time for me and I feel that's just a waste of time for me right now. No, what I mean to say is what do you actually eat? Is there a particular, are you... Whatever is available, but nothing, no no diet, nothing. They're so, poha or idli, what is your typical omelettes? What Usually poha, uh, uh, idli, upma, I hate now because I ate too much of upma, uh, so I can't stand upma anymore. And the omelettes, bread, bread sandwich, bread cheese. Um, uh, and do you exercise? Yes, but not every day. As most people think I should be, but I don't. <laughs> Honestly, I don't exercise every day. I pr- probably exercise about two or three times a week. And do you meditate? No. You meditate. I don't meditate. For me, going up a mountain, going for a walk or cycling is my meditation. That's my... And usually, whenever there's a big thing coming up, like for example, now this cycling expedition is coming up. So naturally, my training regime, my exercise, everything changes, my routine changes. Uh, my diet changes, and, and and you're telling me that you also have one of the largest collection of ebooks. Oh yeah. So so tell me more about that, and which have been your favorite books, and any books you recommend the people out here to to read. Oh, there's one book I recommend every single person to read, and that is The Little Prince mm-hmm. by Saint Antoine Exupery. It's a must. It's and an what, what's the must. book about? <laughs> um, Hey, you read just it. It's, a, it. just it's impossible to summarize it because every time I read it, every single time I read it, I find something new in that book. Also, it's all of sixty-four pages. So sixty-four pages, right? I think everybody and can read the little most, print. and and it's full of illustrations and drawings and, but the most profound book ever. In fact, it's the second most largest selling book after the Bible. The Little Prince. The Little Prince by Saint Antoine Exupery. I recommend that book highly. Well, I'm going to read that for sure. Don't know about the rest of the people. Uh, what is your most valuable possession? Any object which you bought, which you use the most? My most valuable possession would be my... The, the two most valuable. Okay. One's my laptop. Because it helps me read, write, connect to the world. So, And which, which model is this? So this is a Dell laptop that I've just got. The other most valuable... Possession is my white cane, and I. Got and you have a special cane. I've seen that you're showing me how different it is. Yes, so I have a roller tip cane, and uh, the difference between a roller tip cane and a regular white cane is that a regular white cane has a tip to it, and all you can scan is that much of a surface, just the tip. With a roller tip cane, you can scan the entire surface in front of you while you're walking. You don't need to lift the cane, so you actually understand all the undulations or if there are any um, ditches in the road, you scan the entire surface in front of you. So, so it's much for, for all the blind people out there, you need to move from your regular canes to the roller tip canes. And can you get these canes easily? You don't get them in India, but you can order them from Ambitech for about $35. Oh, it's, it's not that expensive. Not that expensive. Not that expensive for the privileged few, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Because... Um, we got to understand that 80% of people with disability who are blind are from extremely But it shouldn't cost right a lot to make it to that. I mean, it, it doesn't just, cost. Uh, yeah. It costs 40 bucks to make it. We have made it, but however, because of patents and all these issues, we can't really make it or sell it. But it, we know how much it costs to make it. It costs 40 bucks. And uh, So do you have any supplements? No vitamin D, vitamin... 
no, no, no supplements, no supplements at all. Uh, my diet is just a regular diet, whatever uh, everybody eats, a one square meal. That's it. What are your indulgences? Nothing. Really. So you don't indulge in anything. Like, what have you have you ever spent on yourself? Yeah, when people force me to buy clothes, yes. Okay. Yeah, they force me to buy clothes. Please note. <laughs> <laughs> or what would you like to indulge in? Let's ask the other way. I would love to indulge in experiences. So what is the one experience you want to indulge like, in? Like, for example, I would like to do a lot of more, lot more adventure sports uh, around the country, maybe outside our country to experience it. So... Uh, that for sure would be an indulgence. Uh, I would like to travel. I love to travel. So that would be one. And you've and, got uh, many travel stories, right? Uh, travel stories. And uh, how do you? I mean, how do you encounter when people are like kind of shocked, looking at you traveling? Because I said not many blind people travel. Mm. So how do you handle that? For me, it's a great opportunity to connect and to create awareness and educate. If somebody does approach, does say something, that's a great connect for me to start having a dialogue. And and I see it as that one person going change after that dialogue is that one person. You never know what that person is, who that person is, and what he can do. But he could be your next champion ambassador. He could be a next champion for your cause and go do something. So I speak to every single person like they're going to go out there and change the world. So, Devansh, you travel very extensively. Tell me some of your travel tales. I'm sure you must be encountering a lot of them. Um, hundreds, hundreds of them. There's one, there's one that um, I remember weirdly. I was traveling uh, by Air India. And this time I was really tired and uh, I was coming back after work and I just wanted to be by myself. I was traveling from Delhi to Pune. And there's this gentleman who's sitting beside me. And this gentleman has a booming voice and everybody's saluting him. So I'm like, okay, this guy must be somebody high up and whatever. And I'm praying to myself that he lets me be to myself. But uh, as luck would have it, no. He starts a conversation and he's like, so son, what do you do? Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. All that happens. Halfway through the flight, I've had enough coke to keep me awake and uh, now I want to go pee. So I press the call button, wanting the attendant to come and so I can use the washroom or go there. And uh, as soon as I press the call button, he's like, what do you want, son? I'm like, no, 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 nothing, nothing. It's all it's all good. Just just need the host. The host comes and uh, he says to the host, the air hostess, I will take care of this. I'm like, damn. Ah. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, I'm say, I, I really need to use the washroom now. So I'm like, okay. And he said, I will take you. And then he proceeds to, he kind of, I, I start marching the aisle, so to speak, with him behind me, giving <laughs> me instructions. And this is an army guy, clearly, with yeah. all his uh, army people, half of the army in the plane. And I'm marching down the aisle with him giving me instructions. Keep life, keep life, all good, all good. And then I go to the washroom, I open the door, he gives me the directions in terms of the layout, and I'm like, thank you very much, can I please now close the door? <laughs> She's like, no, 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 stand here, I and uh, I'm, I'm going to be right outside, 
I'm like, oh, he's <laughs> right outside. So here, imagine this. He's standing outside the washroom. I'm standing inside. So the whole plane can see him, hear him. And not only that, he's giving me directions from outside. <laughs> a little to the left, a little to the right. You're doing good. Excellent. Well, this must be the most amazing pee you had ever had, I guess. I didn't want to come out, man. I wanted to like flush myself down the toilet. <laughs> this is hilarious. You also had a lot of exciting time with some of the aerostasis you were telling me. Uh, exciting. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, well, it's it, very interesting yeah. because often they don't, if I'm traveling with, let's say somebody with me, then they wouldn't talk to me. They'll talk to the person next to me. They, uh, what will sir eat? <laughs> and I'm like, hello, sir knows what to eat <laughs> because you don't have much choice except a crappy sandwich and a cup of coffee. So you can ask sir, sir can talk. <laughs> and they get freaked out when I say, uh, you can ask me, you can talk to me. I'm not going to buy it. I'm blind or they they really scream like like the blind supposed to be hard of hearing or something and they are talking so loudly until you tell them I'm blind I'm not deaf I can hear you or the minute you ask for special assistance the first thing that comes is a wheelchair because universal sign of disability is a wheelchair and they and they get offended if you say I'm blind I'm not going to use a wheelchair thank you very much they're like wheelchair laya abhi abhi kya karoge so then my bags have to go on the wheelchair. I mean, I'm not sitting on the wheelchair. My bags will go on the Well, they, they don't know you are a mountaineer, a trekker, and they're going to put you in a wheelchair. That's ridiculous. Because the minute you say disability, that's the universal symbol. That needs to change probably. Because for them, disability equals wheelchair. wheelchair. Yeah. And you must be in a wheelchair. That's it. So, or, or even more funnier is when I ask them... Uh, so if there is an emergency and the plane's on fire, when will you come for me? And now that puts them in a very difficult position because they say, we're going to come for you last. Last? Last. Why is that? That's the protocol. So I'd say, oh, so you mean there's going to be a blazing fire and I'm going to wait for you and you're going to come. That's right. You're going to come. <laughs> wow, you, <laughs> you're, you're pulling their leg now. But that's the fact. That's the fact. Is that a person with disability will be rescued last? That's the protocol. So now that you've been doing all these adventures, you're meeting corporates, you're doing all these various activities, are you seeing a difference in attitude versus before and now? In a limited way, definitely. In all the in in the amount of circle that I have, I'm seeing phenomenal change. Phenomenal change. And that's what motivates me. That's what reinforces me to continue to do this work because if in the past two years we've created hundreds of jobs we've created scholarships we've got a whole host of writers scribes to write papers we've got a whole host of people to record books for us we've got people to come and tutor persons with disability we've got more accessible travel across the country we uh, so there's so many things that have happened because of uh, these interactions or large organizations making their stores accessible, making their workplaces accessible, all have started happening simply because of these two years of interaction. 
I also see that you are very very active on your phone and you use your phone of course without a screen uh tell me how do you use siri so much i mean siri seems to be your your really be- best friend yeah my laptop my cane and my phone are three most important gadgets i can't live without they have to be with me phone again it's very, very it makes me stay connected so it's accessible it's an iphone completely accessible i mean we have exchanged whatsapp messages text messages we have spoken on the phone several times so how do you use the phone so my phone is no different to any other regular iphone so you go into iphone there is a setting under general i call accessibility you just go into accessibility turn voice over on and there you are your phone starts to talk to you and it becomes completely accessible for me because now it's reading out what is on the active screen so it can be icons it can be applications like for example i want to book an uber i can book an uber independently or you send me a whatsapp message i can uh read and write and send you a text back everything that you do in a phone i can do on my iphone the same way on the same iphone just one feature that the company has built in as universal design if if you had a wish for any app or any other feature any tech company had to build what would that be i would uh, the the one one thing i would like technology to to really and it's going towards that but that technology needs to mature more is image recognition once that starts happening like if you notice facebook has started doing that now it starts describing images to you so it says two people outdoors close up it tells me that much and there's a lot of work happening on image recognition yes. by the way yes there's a lot of work yeah. that's happening in that area once that technology matures then it can also tell me here's a photograph of vishal in uh and he's in the outdoors or vishal is in the outdoors looking really happy that'd be amazing yeah, and and the good news is i don't think so we are far away from that i've already seen mm-hmm. a lot of ai which can right. do it and i think in a matter of maybe a few years mm-hmm. this would happen right for sure any other any other piece of tech you would want apart from image recognition for now that's the biggest challenge image recognition because i already have a uh, uh, technology that helps me stay completely independent this is really nothing i miss i'm absolutely independent so for example um if it's a bottle at home and and i don't know the label i want to read the label i've got kenfp reader and just i just point my phone to it and it reads out the label ocr instant ocr or there's a letter or something printed i just instant ocr it or i want to know what color of my shirt how do i know i'm wearing a white shirt today because i know it's a white shirt because i use color recognition so i just have to point my phone and tell me what color my shirt is what color my jeans are technology is really amazing the other technology i would like to see is maybe we could have more of braille technology coming in and and lower end braille technology uh, lower end as in more more affordable braille technology for example braille printers are very expensive that's something that I mean, can, braille books are very bulky very bulky and very expensive to me plus they have to be published over and over again because as you keep reading them the braille embossing goes goes flat so instead of that if you can have refreshable braille, braille displays or if you can just have audio books or audio books but what happens is different people have different modes of learning like some people are visual learners some are auditory learners some are kinesthetic learners so you have to have formats different formats available for different people 
some I would get very bored and very sleepy listening to an audio book because it's so slow. Mm-hmm. So when I read my my book, I read e-books because I can control the speed. So I go through a six hundred page book in what about two days, whereas with the audio book, my God, it'll take two months. So you have to have all formats available. You can't just say this is the only format. And uh, but if you have Braille refreshable, uh, uh, like like just imagine an iPad, but it's a refreshable Braille iPad, then there's no longer the need for publishing a book. So tell me something. Had on your nineteenth birthday, literally. Would not go blind, and if you had just led a normal life, would you have still done all these things? Have you ever thought about that? I often think about it. You can never tell. You can never tell what the next moment is going to be. So, do you plan ahead, or you do you live with the moment? Both. <laughs> I do plan, but I but I absolutely also live in the moment, and I go and I do allow for things to happen in a way that. They have to unfold. It's 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 very complicated to answer that question for me. Because who would have thought? Who would have thought ten years ago that I'd become a pilot or all of these things? I didn't. I don't know. I never really. I never knew. If you if you ask me at the age of nineteen, this is what you're going to end up becoming. No, I didn't ever dream of that. But if you ask me before nineteen, what did I really envision? I always saw myself in the mountains helping people fall in love, and that's what I'm doing again. That's what I'm doing exactly right now. Not just helping people fall in love with the outdoors, because I believe God is in the outdoors, but also helping them fall in love with themselves, also helping them believe in themselves, also helping them make this world a better place. So, as you know, there are millions of people with disabilities, and for people who are listening to this show, if there is one message you want to tell, what would that be? Just believe in yourself. Don't let the world decide for you. No matter what, we we really have to start learning to imagine possibilities. If if you're faced with this thing that says, you know, oh, but it's impossible. Ask yourself, what makes it impossible? What can what can we do to make it possible? What different do we have to do? So, so basically, challenge is the status quo. Whatever they have been told to do, they should not be doing. They should be Absolutely. challenging and wanting to do exactly what. The opportunities other have, and ask for that. Yes, ask for evidences and question why, and go keep asking why, and you realize that uh, you just need to think. You, this is what Einstein said, and that was very interesting. That you can't uh, solve the problem from the same level of thinking that created it. So, if you think it's a problem, then shift your level of consciousness to see what can solve it. That's where the solution is. Rephrase the problem. So if you tell me how fast a cycle can go, then most people would say a human pedal powered cycle would go what 100 kilometers per hour, 120, 150. How much? How how fast can you pedal a cycle? What's the fastest? Well, certainly not 100, maybe less than that. Less than yeah. right. Now, what if you were to ask yourself, what's the fastest it can go? Maybe you say 150, right? But what about why? Why can't it go to three hundred kilometers per hour? Because that's where our mind stops working. Right? We we say no. So if it can go hundred, it's going hundred. Great. What is helping it to go hundred? And what can I change? What needs to change if it has to go beyond hundred? So so how much of 
how much credit do you give to others to help you achieve where you have reached or you or you have achieved this pretty much on your own you do need support like for example i couldn't have become a pilot without the support of my team without the support of my instructor we believed in each other they believed in me and i believed in them and we trusted each other with our lives any one of them making a mistake i for sure would be dead but we trusted each other and and you need you need people uh you need support you need people who believe in you but it's also your responsibility to make people believe in you you can't sit and complain that nobody believed in me and hence i'm a failure that's crap if nobody believed in you then you need to go out there and help them but, but do you also come across people who take advantage of you or do something which is not right yeah they've taken advantage they've conned me but that's simply because i've let them or i've just been stupid can you give me an example of that? how did they, how did somebody con you like like just last time i came to bombay i had great trouble finding a cab i was coming here in a rush so i um I had some difficulty finding a cab finally i found a cab and i i said you have to drop me here uh you have to drop me to south bombay and i paid him the money and he said uh, i can't drop you to south bombay but i'll drop you to washi and from there you will you'll be able i'll ensure that i put you in another cab who will take you to south bombay and all of this in the same amount of money we fixed the deal i said great and then at washi he puts me in another cab and uh, everything is nice until 10 minutes later this cab driver says that i have not been paid money i'm like what but the deal was that he was supposed to pay i'm like why he was supposed to pay you not me he's like he told me you're supposed to pay me i'm like brilliant we both have been <laughs> so yeah that does happen that, but that happens very rarely very very rarely or for example sometimes you don't sign a contract or you don't sign something and people take you for a ride so that that happens in normal life in normal life exactly yeah. in business and that's just because you're being stupid or you you think that this person will not do it but they end up doing it for whatever reasons and you live and you learn and that's just the way it is so for example last cycling expedition uh, one of the sponsors had promised that they'll get us a cycle and the cycle never arrived but but you still went ahead and did it anyways yeah because i got my friends from uk and germany to get together in uk i bought a second hand cycle on ebay and they actually got that cycle from uk to india and it was a adventure getting that cycle here and that cycle was not meant for those roads in manali to khadunla the cycle broke down after 4 days literally the bottom bracket came out the frame broke we had to hammer the frame in with our feet every 15 minutes for the next 5 days uh, every time i hammered it in i of course kicked myself and mentally kicked the sponsor <laughs> <laughs> But that's okay. That's life. That's part of life. That's part of yeah, it. That's just all right. I you must say, I I must say, Divyanshu, this has been possibly one of the most exciting time of my life talking to you. You're so inspiring, and I think uh, I'm taking away two big lessons from this, and I hope everybody else. In fact, there are lots of lessons from your story, but I think the biggest thing is that the disability is in your mind. Absolutely. as a human you are achieve you are born to do the impossible you are born to do just about everything it's just your mind which is stopping you and i think you proved that and the other thing is also challenging the status quo mm. i think 
people have already defined things for us. For you that you know if you have to grow up if you are a doctor your son needs to be a doctor if you're an engineer you need to be an engineer if you are you know a teacher and so on so i think the problem is society and has already defined the set of path for most people and most people are trying to follow that but the reality is that it is challenging this status quo which can make you do the impossible and make you a super achiever and i think your journey from uh literally being in the darkness to being on literally top of the world at Khardungla and now with all your other plans uh wishing you amazing luck and success and uh, uh we are surely going to be in touch and going to figure out a way how we are going to help you in achieving your dreams but it has been a pleasure to meet you it's been a pleasure thanks pleasure a lot so thank you sir thank you so much thanks a lot everybody और सुनो ये सब या फिर डाउनलोड करो उनका एप सब आपकी उंगलियों पर